0: Welcome to the um, Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. Um, I am Zani. I'm very pleased to um, talk to a colleague of mine, uh, British Bangladeshi, um, Shofi Rahman, and uh, he is speaking to me from Cambridge, um, United Kingdom, where he lives. And uh, Shofi is a a British educated, um, in fact, a Cambridge educated where he lives, and uh, uh, has been a tremendous force uh, for the Rohingya uh, campaigners uh, including people like myself who want to uh, uh, help the Rohingya in their struggle to end the uh, the genocide that my own country and their own country of Burma or Myanmar um, has been committing against them in uh, for the last uh, basically 40 years and uh, uh, I have seen his uh, um, extremely Um, you know, professional and also very disturbing footage of uh, uh, basic uh, atrocities committed by the Burmese military. In particular, um, the massacre that took place, um, I would say um, genocidal uh, violence, uh, you know, that took place on the 30th of August in 2017, um, in a rohingya village called Tula Tuli uh, the burmese called that village village Minji and his footage has been um you know seen at different um you know tribunals uh, including permanent people's tribunal in September 2017 held at the university of malaya uh, Kuala Lumpur i saw that um, you know essentially 2 weeks after he filmed the uh, atrocities and so uh, Shofi, um, uh, the, the, the welcome to the uh, conversation, and uh, can you tell us um, about that? Um, you know, defining film—that was the one that really got the Western media's attention. I think like one thousand people also were killed uh, um, in a um, in a single day.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to explain how, how I came to film that, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, In fact, it was quite strange. I was in Bangladesh in uh, August of 2017 filming with an Italian colleague of mine, filming other issues, not Rohingya-related issues. Um, And towards the end of uh, our filming stint, I visited the camps and I was seeing that there were people coming in. This is well before August the 25th which was the day that the clearance, so-called clearance operations were launched. So this is before that day. And I was speaking in particular to a family which kind of got me a little bit, uh, shall we say, uh, concerned about what's happening. I spoke to a family from Tin May, uh, in Bhutidong. They had already experienced uh, Tatmadaw violence and they had already fled into Bangladesh, and they had come into Bangladesh.
0: You I mean Tamador uh, is the uh, the Burmese military armed forces, right? When yeah. you say Tamador violence.
1: Yes, uh, the Burmese military. So what happened then is that uh, we had finished our filming. I had gone to the camps. I had uh, done a little bit of uh, filming there. Then I went back. Suddenly around uh, about the 25th, uh, in fact, on the 25th and the 26th, my fixers were phoning me, they're saying, uh, where are you because it's all kicking off here. I was already back in England. So I found myself wondering, well, "What is what is happening here? I mean, is it again kicking off like in uh, October, 2016? So I, Immediately booked another uh, flight back. So having stayed a few days in England, I flew back. Uh, on the day of Eat, which is September the 2nd in 2017, it's a, it's a public holiday. Everyone, uh, uh, everyone has a good time. Everyone goes and meets their relatives and uh, they enjoy good food. Uh, but I didn't let my fixers have that day off. I said, right, we're going to the border. And um, it was towards the evening that we reached the border and and, uh, there were lots of people coming towards us and we knew that something was up. Obviously, people were pouring in from that side. Uh, We went up a hill as much towards the uh, fence as we could, the barbed wire fence with Myanmar as we could, and then a horrendous sight unfolded. Uh, people were carrying uh, this uh, uh, this body. At first, we could make out one body. Then we realized there were two bodies: one woman, one man. And uh, and they were trying to cross the border. the others were leaping across uh, the uh, the barbed wire fencing. It was it was absolute pandemonium and chaos. People were crying behind us. They knew what was going on. That people had been shot. And uh, yes, yeah, so that's how it happened on, uh, on a day which should have been uh, a calm day, uh, a day to observe one's religion, to go and visit friends and family. Uh, we went to the border and we witnessed the killing of two people who were the parents of a child. And the child is now an orphan uh, in the camps of Bangladesh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um there was um one thing that you mentioned that had not been picked up because as you know the um you know 2017 genocidal violence you know uh has been framed as something that was triggered by the um you know uh, rohingya militants that you know, go by the name of um, Arakan Ranger Associ—sorry, uh, Salvation Army, or ARSA, um, you, you know, you interview scores of, of the uh, survivors of Tulatuli or Minji village massacre. And uh, you piece together uh, the, the information, the victim testimonies, uh, that not just atrocities, but you know, the peace deal that they you know the villagers uh, you know between the uh, buddhist section uh, a small minority about 400 or so uh, in a, in a, in a large village of about 4000 um, saying they're like you know look uh, uh, that we live here for generations in peace there there have been tensions there have been conflict but hey look this time let's not you know attack each other right and then uh, you you said something like um, the deal itself uh, was a trap, uh, you know, uh, to make sure that the the villagers did not run away, uh, so that when the army hel, I mean the Burmese um, air force helicopters and commandos arrived, they would be ready for the slaughter. Yeah. So, uh, so can, can you? Uh, but but that's um, you know. that undermines the uh, this whole official Burmese and even like Western media narrative that portrays the violence uh, that broke out in August uh, 2017 as something that the Asa or the Rohingya themselves had invited them upon themselves.
1: It's always framed as a response Uh, whenever you see any written piece in whatever media, whether it's uh, BBC, Al Jazeera, whatever, it's in response to the attacks by ARSA. But I think it's quite clear now, so many studies and so many uh, um, documentaries, other documentaries, have noted that there was prior mobilisation, mobilisation across that uh, 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 kind state. And, um, but, but who was mobilising
0: the, the troops?
1: We're talking about the Burmese uh, uh, military being mobilized. We also, see, we also see, as I said, in, uh, in places like Tin May, already uh, troops had been mobilized and already some action had taken place against uh, the Rohingya there. So we know that troop mobilization had taken place. We also know that on the 25th, the response didn't only happen in those outposts they said, were attacked in those areas that, that they said uh, were attacked by ARSA, but across Rakhine State, uh, all at the same time. So you can't have this kind of overnight, um, if you like, mobilization. Clearly, it was planned. So I think the consensus now, or certainly what's, what, what people are arguing now, is that, no, this was a well-planned operation, and uh, uh, and this was not a response to that particular event that uh, the, the Burmese military claim. So, but in Tulatoli, it's quite specific. Uh, there were determined efforts to keep the people there. Uh, the, the, the chairman of the village, Anko Singh, he told uh, villagers that they would be safe. The BGP there also told villagers, look, you're meant for better to be here, Otherwise, we will label them as bad man, which we will label them as that, and there will be consequences. So it was an effort to keep them assembled there. Unlike other places, by the way, where, they, where the idea was to get rid of them as soon as possible, uh, like, for example, the pressure that people faced in Tenmei. Uh, whereas in Tulaturi, it seemed that this was a special place where they had a special plan laid out. Um, and uh, so there were a number of meetings held outside Tulatuli which it, the idea was that people in Tulatuli should go for the NVC card, people in Tulatuli otherwise it would not be you know would be considered bad people etc. All of this led up to the 30th so and, it, and there was a concerted effort to keep people in place by the time this massacre
0: took place. And, right. Yeah. So, sorry to interrupt. I think, you know, the the, the UN came up, I, I think it was um, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres himself, you know, dis, uh, describing the situation, um, you know, by way of uh, his response to, uh, um, I think, Israel, Al Jazeera English um, reporter. How else can you describe the situation other than ethnic cleansing, you know? Yeah, granted, the ethnic cleansing doesn't have the, uh, uh, the, you know, a body of law that can go after the uh, uh, the perpetrators, you know, it's because it's not a international law, uh, the, the same way war crimes or crimes against humanity or genocide is. But the, 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 what you are describing, based on your eyewitness or survivors' testimonies, they were not being driven away. They were deliberately kept it, you know as a as a cluster of 800 700 900 whatever the n- number and then slaughter you know I mean it it, it it goes against this you know loose uh you know uh, the, the, the the characterization of the whole thing as ethnic cleansing you know uh, we, I don't buy it but but uh, how do you feel about you know, describing a scenario that you documented as something which is not.
1: Well, firstly, let me correct you. It's about four and a half thousand people uh, right. in into Latalee. And um, if you speak to the people there, and if you speak to the history before all this broke loose, even before 2016, let's say after 2012, you see more and more restrictions placed on that village. You see more and more people in that village being accused of RSO members, being imprisoned. Uh, Life made very difficult. There were five mosques in the five uh, hamlets of Tula All of them were closed, people couldn't worship, people would be dragged away. If they tried to even make repairs to the mosque, or if they tried to hold Friday prayers in each other's homes, So there was a real concerted effort to limit life uh, in all its richness. Um, And uh, so you could see that this was not a one-off thing that happened on August the 30th because of what Arsa did on, uh, uh, supposedly on the 25th, and what happened in Tulatoli on the 30th of August. So you could see that this was a place which was designated as an area for them to exercise what they practice. To me, this is not ethnic cleansing. It may be a shorthand used by bureaucrats and others and other humanitarians, but this doesn't describe the process. To me, it's a much more planned, systematic uh, constriction of life, and on 30th of August, an attempt to finish life.
0: Yeah, I mean, like uh, the total destruction of structures and essentially an extermination of, uh, you know, almost entire uh, the, uh, the, the Rohingya community there. But bear, bear in mind though, I mean, like, you know, the uh, satellite images and whatnot that have been like thoroughly, you know, uh, the, the, the studied by Human Rights Watch and others like US um, uh, uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum research teams. As well as the State Department team, and you know that spent three months on the ground interviewing one thousand people, we are looking at uh, you know basically several hundred villages of varying sizes of population, you know uh, the, the in an area that spans from say like London to Oxford, you know about you know sixty miles or eighty kilometers, yeah, and so. So your documentary captured, um, you know, methodically what the Burmese military did to a single village. But there, are, there are, you know, several hundred villages and thirty-eight thousand structures. Yeah, uh, residents, uh, residential structures, uh, places of worship, uh, rice go downs. Yeah, uh, stables. Um, uh, you know as well as like con- you know the uh, communal spaces so so w- w- if the, w- what i'm trying to get here is uh, you know if what you're describing and and uh, you know uh, 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 was replicated even you know Half the number of villages destroyed. We are looking at about hundred or hundred and fifty villages. You know, basically this. You know, in the case of a, uh, you know, the Serbian genocide of uh, uh, Bosniaks at Srebrenica in a single day, they killed, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost eight thousand Muslim men and boys. Right, uh, singled them out and slaughtered them in Srebrenica. But in this case, uh, we are looking at multiple Srebrenica's, you know, uh, the, but, and, and that triggered, uh, you know, the 750,000 Rohingya exited in a span of basically eight or nine weeks. yeah. And, and um, why do you think the Western media, or any media, international media, or any writer, yeah, despite all evidence to the contrary, this is not i mean the uh, you know uh, simply a matter of the burmese military using excessive force or responding to a legitimate threat to national security why do you think that the, you know the, all these established institutions keep repeating the same narrative that the burmese military put out that they are just simply defending the uh, the burmese state from the uh, attacks launched by the um, Rohingya militants so why do you think what's wrong with the uh, you know the the, the media and the, uh, the the UN organizations in the way they repeat the uh, the the perpetrator's narrative um,
1: let me give you a long-winded answer to this as someone who deals with visuals i think uh, this might give us a clue about uh, why um, uh, this approach is uh, preferred to any other kind of description of what went on. Um, I think if you look at Rohingya imagery on the web uh, and the kind of uh, imagery that you see that picture editors use, uh, that humanitarian organizations use, it's always a very um, traumatized refugee, uh, perhaps a woman, perhaps a woman clutching her head or a baby, and it renders them very powerless, and it renders them as just traumatized individuals, desperate individuals, and I can see the need, right? You need to highlight the crisis, 750,000 people, as you've just said, in a matter of weeks, the fastest refugee crisis, etc. And you need to get that emotive response so you get the finance, etc. But it does something else. So what this does is removes any agency from the refugee, removes any capacity or capability from the refugee. And what does that do? Well, if they're just there for you to act upon them, then it means that you can manage them manage their uh what they need and manage what they what they should do in the future etc it lends itself to external management it robs refugees of their power it robs refugees of their agency of their ability to constitute themselves politically it completely robs them of all of this and I think we saw this example, didn't we? I mean, if you, if you think about last year in particular, how when refugees come together in any kind of political shape, they are immediately uh, stamped upon. Um, let, let, let me tell you what I'm talking about. For example, uh, again, a sign of the external management that this kind of approach lends itself to was the secret MOU between Myanmar and the UN agencies? Refugees don't need to be consulted. We don't need to consult them. We can manage the situation for them because all they are are just traumatized people sitting in the camps waiting for their 12 kilograms of rice. So when refugees refused to be repatriated, when they came together, uh, and said, "No, we're not having this. This is certain death. We're going back to. We're not doing this. The, you've done this over and over again. It hasn't worked. When will you realise it hasn't worked? We're not going. What happened? The foreign minister of Bangladesh, Abdul momin said um, that I'm going to make life uncomfortable for you. So here was an example of uh, of refugees." coming together politically, constituting themselves, and making a political decision not to go back, and this is what happens. On the 25th, they had tens of thousands of Rohingya mourning their dead, coming together in a peaceful meeting, again politically constituting themselves, and making demands on Myanmar, not Bangladesh, but Bangladesh interpreted it differently. What is this large body of people doing? And what happened immediately after the twenty-fifth? You had a barrage of restrictions on uh, on the Rohingya.
0: Yeah, you uh, you you you. Sorry to interrupt, but you are referring to a uh, second or third, um, you know, a, a genocide memorial. You know, like you said, like you know, the uh, you know thousands and thousands of Rohingyas. Uh, you know, the, uh, getting together in different fields in the uh, r- uh, refugee camps in Bangladesh, and um, uh, the saying Muslim prayers, and uh, I believe also uh, the, the 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 gathered uh, you know Rohingyas also were expressing their gratitude and appreciation to the host uh, 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 the society as well as uh, the host government. Yeah, and and. Um, but what what I find uh, personally most um, uh, you know offensive is that these secret memo um, memorandums uh, between the uh, the Burmese regime and the UN uh, involving the headquarters in U- uh, in New York or the bilateral MOU between Bangladesh and Myanmar or Burma itself they you know basically repeat this mantra voluntary, safe, dignified and sustainable return, while they attempt to basically shut the Rohingyas out of the process and silence them.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, without any consultation, what this means is that they don't recognize the capacity of refugees to speak their mind, uh, to determine and define their own interests. We will do this for you. So to answer your question in this long-winded way, it's to lend itself to the management of refugees that they need to treat them like this, that they need to frame the arguments their way, that they don't need to consult anyone, don't need to speak to anyone, um, and so on. And, you know, you, one could excuse them if, if, if their strategy was delivering, but it isn't delivering. Let's look at Bangladesh. The general consensus is Bangladesh, in Bangladesh is that these Rohingya are a real burden. They have not even, UNHCR has not even managed to create a consensus in Bangladesh which empathises with the Rohingya. Despite all the things that they might be doing, you know, which benefits the host community, they have not been able to create that kind of opinion and of course they have failed in the ultimate responsibility which is to secure refugee rights again both of these things lend itself to management of refugees no need to consult them manage them
0: yeah so so we're looking at a double whammy situation where the uh, the victim communities all right our, you know we okay we respect the uh, the agency uh, we would like to see them uh, self-organized and uh, define, you know, basically uh, their survival issue. You know, when they say, don't set us back to the killing fields, yeah, where thousands of uh, people have been, or their relatives and family, slaughtered and we came here. Yeah. You know, some rangers are threatened or they're basically they made a serious uh, statement say, we rather, you know, uh, commit group suicides as families or communities that are being forced on the buses to go. No one would go, yeah. But this, this situation has been going on, um, you know, uh, chronically since 1978, yeah. And uh, the volume of, of uh, uh, you know, Rohingyas that have fled have only triple or quadruple. In you know, in 1978, the first wave, um, you know, reached the climax um, with the um, you know the 200,000 Rohingyas across the border, this was 1978. That's repeated, and and, and you know, fast forward 2017, we reach uh, you know 750,000. So it's so almost quadruple. So obviously the you know neither the UNACR's approach, you know broadly speaking, UN's approach or, or Dhaka or Bangladesh approach has delivered, as you pointed out. So, but why, why do we keep hearing this mantra, safe, voluntary, you know, uh, dignified and sustainable? I don't even know what the word dignified in this situation mean when, um, you know, the the, the the entire approach is to make the uh, the Rohingya weak and disempowered, stripped of any political agency. And then they keep saying, yet yeah, safe, dignified, voluntary, and sustainable return. Well, I mean, it, it, it you know, these they, they don't go together. What's wrong with here, with the humanitarian discourse?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up 1978 because history does repeat itself. Uh, on the 12th of July in 1978, there was the uh, secretary of the uh, Ministry of Relief and Rehabilitation, uh, Said Ali Khosru, and he had a big uh, meeting in a spacious office in Dhaka with uh, top-level UN agencies, top-level representatives of UN agencies and government departments and so on. And you know what he said there, Zani? He said, well, gentlemen, it's all very well to have fat, well-fed refugees but I must be a politician, and we are not going to make the refugees so comfortable that they won't go back to Burma. Exactly, all these years later, uh, in August of 2017, uh, uh, Abdul momin the foreign minister, says the same thing. And you know, as a result of what Kosuth did, uh, there were so many lives lost uh, in, in in the camps, and none of the UN agencies sitting in that meeting, complained. They didn't say, no, 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 you can't do this. You can't restrict their food and so on. So in June of that year, I, I believe the death rate in the camps was 4%, which is double, 4% annually, which is double what the Bangladesh rate was. Mm. And I think um, in uh, towards December, it went up to eight and a half times the Bangladesh average. Right, so you had thousands of people dying. I think the total calculated was between 10 and 12,000 people dying of starvation, etc. So um, they have overseen all of this, they have all of this in their history. They write about it themselves, and yet they do what they're doing. Um, I'm, I'm, as, I'm as stumped as you are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard uh, you know in, in the Hague, um, you know, the uh, former um, the foreign secretary, uh, not the minister, not the cabinet-level person, you know, head of the uh, um, bureaucracy within the mofa or foreign ministry, essentially emphatically demanded um, uh, that the Rohingya show gratitude and, and stay eternally grateful to to the Bangladeshi government, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's one thing that Bangladesh try to play hardball with the Rohingya, just so that the they can control, manage, and 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 silence uh, whenever it's needed the, the Rohingya of uh, refugee population, but it's a, it's another thing to tell that community whose lives they're going to make, a, you know, you know. Um, uncomfortable. that's a vast understatement. there is no life there. that's just like mere existence. We've been there. you've been there yeah. to say that these people should be grateful yeah. say, uh, and and uh, you know their children and um, at night you know dare not go to the toilet particularly young girls and women don't go to don't dare go into the toilet you know in in a lot of instances because of the traffickers and the uh, gang. Uh, uh, gangs that that operate uh, in in these like thirty plus camps. Um, you are working on um, the human trafficking, and um, um, can you can you tell us about the conditions in the camp with respect to safety, security, and what is, you know, facilitating or enabling the traffickers. I
1: think it's necessary to name the gentleman who spoke those words that insisted that Rohingya should be grateful, Shohidul Haq. And uh, I think it's very, um, what's the word, arrogant of him to say such a thing. Uh, He can't demand gratitude. um, And uh, the conditions that he has helped to create, I certainly would say that people ought to be uh, grateful. Um, look, I started work in the camps in, uh, in December of 2016. Then I went back in 2017. I had no, absolutely no intention to make films about Rohingya, to do any journalism on Rohingya. I just simply went down there to have a look at what was happening. Um, and what I saw and what I heard convinced me that, you know, I, I had to do my job. I had to bear witness. And, um, so... In in the months that followed, what was clear to me was that uh, Bangladesh is certainly a refuge, but it's not a safe refuge. Uh, People have fled from Burma, then they're living in makeshift camps. There's serious malnutrition. The head of ACF last year told me that there's still emergency level malnutrition for people under five, for children under five. There's no freedom of movement. The people can't work, children don't have access to formal education, there's no internet access, barbed wire pillars are going, uh, are going up all over the place. So, and, and of course, the camp conditions are very, very congested and, and very problematic, and some of the things you've mentioned there, uh, and the environmental hazards as well. So it, it's, it's really not a, you know, I mean, certainly Bangladesh let them in. And, uh, uh, but what are you supposed to do? I mean, is uh, you know, can you, I mean, this is what happens in a war. This is physiological. If there's a war, people will run. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to stop them or shoot them? So, um, but anyway, uh, so Bangladesh is a refuge, but it's not a safe refuge. I started following a group of six women. Within one month, one of them was trafficked. And there's no sign of her, there's no word of her, three years later, three and a half years later. Um, Certainly, there's a lot of trafficking uh, going on in the camps, uh, not just to Malaysia, which we hear about, but also to India. So my, my documentary that I've been trying to do, which has been thwarted by the pandemic, uh, involves us going into India where we uh, look at Rohingya victims in, uh, in, a, in a home there. Uh, Rohingya victims, by that I mean children. Children who fall foul of India's um, uh, uh, foreign, uh, uh, Foreigners Act, Section 14 of India's uh, Foreigners Act. And that effectively criminalizes them. That means that they end up incarcerated for years and years in these children's homes and if you read indian local newspapers national newspapers you will realize that these homes themselves are hugely problem- problematic not only because of what goes on in these homes but also some of these children are found out for sexual purposes so these are very very problematic places the only way back for rohingya children is to escape from these homes and to be smuggled back. So you have a situation where, you know, where Bangladesh of India have created uh, uh, conditions legitimizing the role of the trafficker, the role of the smuggler. Because the only way the child can get back to his or her parents is to be counter-smuggled back in Bangladesh. So it, it's it's uh, it's 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 very very uh, it's very very uh, disheartening. I've also been looking into Malaysia, of course, and, uh, and I've been filming near Wan uh with the help of our journalist there, Arul Das, who was the first person to to uh, call out what was happening in uh, in Wan And um, yeah, we can talk about that if if you like
0: right so what you're saying is that you know the situation the the situation for the rohingyas so bad that even you know human tracking trafficking can have a redeeming aspect to it correct me if i'm wrong
1: no that's absolutely the case there is no way for a registered or unregistered rohingya to come back into bangladesh through formal channels it's uh, we have managed through address verification and through other uh, pushing to manage to get back 11 Bangladeshi girls from one of the homes. But that's because they're Bangladeshis. That's because their parents have papers and so on and so forth. But unregistered Rohingya and even registered Rohingya, registered Rohingya meaning those Rohingya holding UNHCR refugee cards in Bangladesh. Even those guys, those children are not able to come back to Bangladesh. So yes, of course, here the trafficker is the savior.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's outrageous and as well as tragic because uh, you've got two legitimate political organizations, you know, uh, governments in um, New Delhi and government in um, Dhaka. If yourself and myself and others are aware of, you know, this aspect, you know. "Quote unquote positive aspect of human trafficking or smuggling back children to, to their to safety and their families. This is something that they ought to be doing, yeah. And uh, to, the, you know, like uh, to eliminate the uh, uh, the human trafficking industry, they need to you know remove unnecessary and and uh, inhuman." you know, obstacles.
1: Again, I believe that, you know, we need to ask UNHCR, why have you not created conditions where people in Bangladesh are well disposed towards Rohingya so that it's easy for the government to do this? Without public support for such moves, the public would be horrified. Wow, wow, what is this? Our our, our government uh, is inviting the Rohingya? They're going to take out, you know, all our jobs, etc., etc. So again, uh, it's the failure of these UN agencies to make the conditions conducive for such operations to, to happen. And, well, and by the way, I've talked to them myself and I said, How what do they say?
0: What do they I, say?
1: I, I've talked to them myself and they and they say quite clearly uh, the only option is counter smuggling.
0: Well, what do they mean by counter smuggling? You mean bringing them back into um, to the camps? So,
1: but if you want to get a person, uh, a child back from India into yeah. the country, to be reunited with their family, the only way you can do it is through a trafficker.
0: Well, I mean, like, you know, that's an admission of complete failure of UNHCR's, uh, you know, main mandate. Number one mandate for the UNHCR is refugee protection. You know what I mean? That, I mean, if they're not standing up for the uh, Rohingyas, th- their right to self-identify, or their right to be called a Rohingya, uh, sorry, uh, refugees, and, and, and uh, be given all the basic rights that go with the you know, international label, uh, the, the Rohingya, uh, sorry, refugee. I mean, what good is Rohingya H-E-R here? I mean, like, they've been there in, like, since 1978. I don't oh, 40 think there plus for year.
1: refugee rights, they are there for refugee management. It's a completely different thing.
0: Whoa, that's you know that speaks volume about uh, the, um, the you know the the failure of the uh, a particular UN agent, um, agency here. But um, um, can you tell us um, why you know you have become so? um focused on the um you know documentary filmmaking around rohingya human trafficking and also you've also submitted um uh, a thing like uh, the 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 victim's testimonies or evidence to the international criminal court in the hague uh, that's separate from the international court of justice yeah can you can you can you tell why you do what you do, and what is it about this, uh, um, you know, evidence submission that um, you know uh, that you find rather compelling?
1: Well, I got into filmmaking by accident. Um, I was actually I, I went through a period of illness, and uh, then my parents were ill in Bangladesh. I was their principal carer, um, and. I got talking to a friend of mine, and he introduced me to a well-known Bangladeshi filmmaker, Tanvir Mokammel, and we did some films together. We, we made uh, one of the first I think I think it's one of the, uh, the first uh, uh, films on garment workers and uh, the difficulties they face. and then we made a film about um, the Biharis one stateless people uh, in Bangladesh. Um, at the end of 1971, maybe you visited uh, one of their camps in Dhaka, Azani, uh, the, these people were identified as collaborators with the enemy, Pakistan, uh, and their properties were confiscated and their rights restricted and the uh, citizenship taken away and they came to be interred in the in, in internment camps, the 116 camps. So I already had a taste of uh, what it's like to be a marginalized uh, group in Bangladesh. I also worked in the Hill Tracks. Um, I worked with Tandu Mukamil in the Hill Tracks in post-production, and also I, I did some work myself in the Hill Tracks for a project on tobacco. And again, that's another area where, where uh, indigenous uh, people are rather marginalized. Um, and the, the tales around uh, that area are, are quite something. Uh, the building of a dam, the displacement of 100,000 people without compensation, of course, and so on. So I'm always interested in stories which show the limits, the parameters of of, uh, of, of Bangladeshi inclusiveness. Um, so when I came across the Rohingya situation, look, I blogged about the Rohingya situation in the past, but I really had no idea of, what I was going to encounter when I went down there in December uh, 2016. Um, so, and I thought this, this, you know, given the given the dearth of work on the Rohingya, um, this would be uh, something that that's important to me. But through the work that I did, it became more than work. Um, I think uh, when I worked with the, when I was filming the girls towards the end of work with the girls Uh, I asked them what they would like and there were well-wishers who wanted to help them and that was very important because I think um, what that showed me is that um, you know resilience is a word that's often bandied about and it it really doesn't mean anything but when I saw that when these girls were given sewing machines given a purpose Given some sort of livelihood, given some decision-making opportunities, they came together. They shared their lives together. They came together and they and they really formed something. Uh, you should you know if you ever uh, if we ever go back to Bangladesh, uh, uh, given the pandemic situation, and if you attend one of their meetings, it's quite something. It's a very very lively thing. It's not at all the typical view of growing a woman that you get. Uh, not at all. Um, and this is what happens if you, if you give people a sense of normality, a sense of purpose, and coming together and acting together. So to me, uh, these experiences meant more than just work for me. Um, they they, uh, they helped me understand things about myself, uh, about the world. So I, I guess I'm enmeshed and embedded in all of these ways, both uh, professionally, uh, emotionally, uh, and intellectually.
0: Right. Um, how difficult emotionally, uh, you know, obviously psychologically for you when you were, f- film, um, you know, filming the testimonies of uh, the survivors of Tula Tuli. And and you know like what well, what type of conditions in which uh, you know you were working in order to produce you know uh, essentially uh, you know international court standard evidence.
1: Well, look, um, in January of 2017, I actually spoke to a, a clinical psychologist. And I said, look, uh, I'm going to be interviewing lots of people. These were the Tula Tuli victims at that time. There was, these were people from Mongo and other places who had, been the, uh, who had been kicked out in the uh, 2016 um, uh, clearance operations. And I told them, look, I don't want to traumatize them and I don't want to be traumatized myself. And uh, as I've often said in interviews, et cetera, I, you know, I, would, I would be in the underground and I'd well up and I realized that something was wrong, that I needed to speak to someone, and I did. And they gave me some papers to read and those have helped uh, a lot. Uh, nevertheless, I have to say that uh, there are some things uh, which have changed forever. Uh, I can't uh, deal with certain things. Um, I, I, one of the first films I made was on rape. Um, I can't watch that film. So these are some of the things that have uh, impacted on me, uh, for sure, emotionally. Um, Look, I cannot claim any uh, credit for the submissions. Uh, Those were done by lawyers. I, because I knew the tulip community, because there was a sense of trust that they had uh, with me, that I facilitated that process, and I was involved in that process. Uh, And I'm also uh, giving the material that I have, material that I've collected um, uh, on, on various villages to the IIMM.
0: Um,
1: so, May The
0: um, independent mechanism, the uh, UN led uh, um, essentially genocide or crime archives on Burma,
1: right? That's correct, yes. So um, I hope my work will be useful in that way. I've certainly spent uh, over the last, I think, Going back this January, counting back 36 months, I went to Bangladesh 24 times. So <laughs> I have a lot of footage and a lot of material. 24 times. Which I would sure. like to share with uh, yeah, with these people.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of, um, you know, Burmese, Rakhines and others who, you know, uh, the, either by accident or as a matter of like their professional uh, work, um, have compiled the various types of video, uh, the footage, um, if they feel that um, you know they want to be on the right side of history uh, and uh, want to submit, you know whatever footage or documentation in their possession. Um, what, um, what type of advice would you have for them? You know, uh, the, the, I know personally there are, uh, you know, fellow Burmese inside who wish to uh, support and help the Rohingyas in this justice and accountability process. And they're amateurs and, you know, n- none of them has ever uh, submitted anything or dealt with the court of law at the international level.
1: I think the first thing to tell them is don't delete anything. Keep backups of everything and don't delete anything. I think there are so many processes going on, and these will be lengthy processes, whether it's Argentina, whether it's ICC, whether it's the ICJ, all of these processes will be lengthy. And um, I, I believe that uh, they, you know, people will reach out for evidence, uh, I, I, as they already are doing, and I think there's uh, room for everyone Uh, who has any uh, useful evidence to come forward and and make that known. Uh, Regarding cataloging, regarding all the technical uh, kind of stuff, sure. I mean, I think uh, that, you know, whichever body uh, that they're giving to, they will be able to glean that information from them. But I think the most important thing is, and I think, you know, one of the things that's happening with the Rohingya is a lot of information is being lost. They're losing their mobile phones, or they're changing their mobile phones, or their SIMs are becoming corrupt, or their memories are becoming corrupt. And as a result, a lot of information has just gone.
0: Gone uh, forever. And,
1: yeah. And I'm very lucky that I've you know, managed to collect this, uh, whatever I could. Um, but this is what's happening. This is what happens after a genocide. By the way, I was in Balukali too near Camp Levin. Um, I think in 2017, winter of 2017, and there was a woman burning a whole pile of stuff and I could see papers and I said, what are you doing? She says, oh, I won't need them anymore. And these are uh, documents like the Sui set document and so on. I'm glad to say she was the only person I've ever seen burning her, uh, her documents, but uh, this is what happens. People, people lose stuff. Um and th- th- these things become irrelevant, so not as important, but these are very, very significant for the processes we've just discussed.
0: Yeah, you um you are organizing or you've organized this um, um the photo competition uh by the Rohingya stemsov, and that uh, you know, uh, we have had conversations uh around the uh the, the, the Rohingya of situation and, uh, and we both share the, um, the view that, um, you know, the, the victim mentality isn't really helping uh, the Rohingya community, objectively speaking. Yes, of course they've been victimized uh, over the years, but there, there's a, a, a limit to the value of feeling that um, we are victims. Um, the, the, I think recently, uh, you know, you read um, a press statement by uh, a, a ranger organization over the usage of plight versus, you know, struggle. Can you care to, um, you know, share your uh, uh, brotherly advice and why, you know, the, the victims in a paradoxical way cannot continue on? feeling victimized and you know feeling or staying within that victim paradigm
1: well firstly let me tell you br- briefly about uh, about the competition i think uh, as this is a critical period for the rohingya in the camps with the pandemic and etc and i'm not there and i'm not able to document it so i thought this was a perfect time to hold this competition and i'm getting i think i've got 700 photographs on uh, two oh, top
0: 700 by rohingyas
1: themselves by rohingyas themselves uh, and so two topics one is rohingya life so i've been getting lots of everything from children doing cartwheels to you know to old men smoking biddies and so on and uh, also response to covid and so lots of evidence of social distancing even in no man's land people sitting uh, distantly from each other and enjoying the evening air. So it, it's been really, really an eye opener. And honestly, if you look at the website, you will find that they, 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 you, that you wouldn't think, oh, these are uh, just complete amateurs. They are really excellent shots uh, from people who are, who are, I mean, really hungry for, uh, for an opportunity to express themselves. Uh, whether it's artistic expression or even journalistic expression because a lot of them are doing a series of photos which concentrate on a topic for example uh, the fires that have taken place uh, or the floods that have taken place so they're getting into this uh, framework of telling their story themselves rather than just getting the usual foreign photographers who for once can't get in and uh, do their thing and uh, take all the limelight and so on. So I think it's great. And we're going to have an exhibition in Oxford. We're going to have an exhibition in Ottawa and so on. Regarding the victimhood thing, um, I need to be polite here. I think you know some of this is about education. Some of this is about ethics. And I think uh, this is what's important here, uh, to have uh, a solid understanding of journalistic ethics, uh, a solid understanding of how to to portray people who are in these uh, difficult and uh, disastrous, uh, catastrophic uh, situations. I think that doesn't always happen. And I think it's a matter of training, it's a matter of education, it's a matter of, um, of, of, of experience and facility. And you can't have that with the internet blockades and the lack of education, the inability to move around, or, and all the panoply of restrictions that operate on Bangladesh. But obviously, it's a matter of engagement, education, and training around issues of uh, ethics and,
0: uh, um, yeah. Well, um, finally, um, I think like we talked about uh, your work, um, you know, the uh, substance or. The substantive issues around the Rohingyas. What about yourself? The you know, uh, you know, your education, your life, um, and uh, you know, th- uh, the the things that have led to the work you're doing. I mean, obviously, um, you know, your work is very, very vital, uh, for the Rohingya as well as for the larger human rights um, um uh, the causes. You know, tell us uh, about you know, the, the the your own educational, intellectual, personal background.
1: And uh, this is the most boring bit of the conversation, Sony.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I I, I I I I I think it would be it would be incomplete, um, you know, talking about a document document documentarian or documentary filmmaker. Because you're always documenting the world outside and the world wants to document the documentary maker. <laughs> Well, I, I think
1: if I had to explain my life to you, I, th- I think there are two, if you like, uh, significant experiences which have uh, shaped me, shaped my thinking, etc. cetera. I, w- I did a lot of work in South Africa uh, during the apartheid years. Uh, in fact, I first went there doing some work for uh, United Nations Assistant Secretary General, Mr. Anuga Reddy, um, on uh, on the Indians and how they were uh, being co-opted by the state. That was in eight, 1989 during the third emergency. And lots of stories to tell you in another podcast about uh, about what
0: happened in that. You you were you were a student activist or student or, uh, already finished at university at the time eighty nine. Yeah,
1: I I I finished my first degree and um, so it was it was quite a formative experience and i think the what i learned in south africa has i hope stood me well in what i'm doing now um and uh, these are great monolithic structures that these two countries south africa and myanmar have created apartheid and apartheid and genocide in the other case and i think uh that experience in uh, south africa has stood me well and i think uh, if i can continue to do some work on the rohingya issue even given this pandemic uh, it would be really great and i'd love to do that
0: well thank you so much we are on one hour mark and so i'll let you get back to your dinner and uh, feeding your kids and uh, thanks thanks again shofi we are talking to a uh, famed, um, you know, Bangladeshi-British documentary filmmaker, Shofi Rahman.
1: Thanks very much.